This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports regarding the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, how to improve your relationships, how to keep your mind healthy, and all that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, along with trying to inform the general public better about mental health-related issues. And we'll have regular updates from time to time regarding mental health issues for those in our military, both active duty and veterans, as well as children's mental health updates and stress in the workplace mental health updates as the information presents itself. And uh, welcome to tonight's podcast. This was pre-recorded for airing initially on June 29th, 2016. And first up on tonight's podcast, last week, a report came out showing that the non-medical use of prescription opioids, uh, let me translate that a little bit, non-medical use means taking it other than being prescribed by a physician for a specific purpose, or in very, very plain English, abuse of the drugs. And opioids are narcotic painkillers. They get that word opioid because ultimately most narcotic painkillers are derived from opium. It's in the opium poppy. It's in morphine. And then you have lots of chemical cousins and synthetic versions. So this the abuse of narcotic painkillers, therefore, doubled among adults in the United States between 2001 to 2002 and 2012-2013. Um, so in the short span of 10 years, you have twice as many people abusing or at least misusing narcotic painkillers in the U.S. This comes to us from a study done by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, otherwise known as the NIAAA for short. The NIAAA is part of the National Institutes of Health. It's in Bethesda, Maryland. It's our government health research agency. Nearly 10 million Americans, or 4.1% of the entire adult population of the United States, used opioid medications in 2012 to 2013. This includes a class of drugs uh, that takes in some of the most widely abused medications there are, OxyContin and Vicodin. And they were taking these drugs without a prescription or at least not as prescribed, meaning taking in greater amounts 
then prescribed more often than prescribed or longer than prescribed during the previous year. This is up from 1.8% of the adult population 2001 to 2002. So let's review that again. So where is 2001 to 2002, 1.8% of the United States adult population were somehow misusing narcotic pain relievers. In 2012 to 2013, that went up to 4.1% of the adult population or some 10 million people. Now, more than 11% of Americans report non-medical use of prescription narcotic pain relievers at some point in their lives, a considerable increase from 4.7% 10 years prior. The number of people who meet the criteria for a diagnosis of prescription opioid addiction has substantially increased during this time frame as well. 2.1 million adults, or 0.9% of the United States adult population, report symptoms of what's called non-medical prescription opioid use disorder. Uh, that is a new diagnosis in the latest edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That was the fifth edition as of May 2013. The increasing misuse of prescription opioid pain relievers poses a myriad of serious public health consequences, according to Dr. Nora Volkow, director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which contributed funding for the study. She says these include increases in opioid use disorders and related fatalities from overdoses, as well as the rising incidence of newborns who experience neonatal abstinence syndrome. In some instances, prescription opioid misuse can progress to intravenous heroin use with consequent increases in risk for HIV hepatitis C, and other infections among individuals sharing needles. Now, there's a lot in that quote from Dr. Volkow. And first of all, the related fatalities from overdoses in terms of the increase in opioid use disorders, uh, recent statistics show that there's somewhere between 20 and 25,000 in, in that area uh, of people who have died of uh, opioid drug overdoses um, in in the last year or on an annual basis. So uh, there's virtually an epidemic of overdose deaths, probably many of them unintentional, uh, from opioid pain relievers. And then the newborns, uh, the neonatal abstinence syndrome, what that means is if a woman who is addicted to or abusing or misusing narcotic pain relievers continues to do so while she's pregnant, then when her baby is born and it's no longer getting these drugs through the placental circulation from 
his or her mother, then that baby's going to go into withdrawal from opiates. I understand how awful that sounds, but yes, believe it or not, that can happen, and I know it's hard to imagine that um, a woman who's pregnant would continue to do that, but uh, this is just how insidious drug addiction and dependence can be. And then, of course, the medical consequences. If you are progressing from oral use of prescription narcotic pain relievers and they become too difficult or too expensive to obtain, then unfortunately heroin is becoming cheaper and easier to obtain. And certainly heroin can be snorted, but a very common way for it to be used is to, for it to be injected. And if people share injection needles with other substance abusers, then they're putting themselves at risk for uh, infections that can be carried on uh, blood-tinged needles such as hepatitis C, HIV, a virus that causes AIDS, and others. Scientists analyzed data from the NIAAA's National Epidemiologic Survey, sorry, Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions uh, the third study, again, that's National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol-Related Conditions, NISARC, for short, NISARC-3, because it's the, the third such survey. This is ongoing research that looks at alcohol and drug use disorders among the U.S. population, as well as other associated mental health conditions besides alcohol and drug use disorders. Uh, now, this study that we're talking about appears online in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Prescription opioid misuse is definitely an urgent public health problem. Drug poisoning deaths involving opioid painkillers, which includes both prescription opioids like Oxycontin, Vicodin, and others, as well as illicit opioids like heroin, um, <clears throat> the misuse of these drugs quadrupled from 1999 up to 2014. That, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta, emergency department visits increased 153% from 2004 to 2011 based on data from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, otherwise known as SAMHSA, uh, from the, their Drug Abuse Warning Network. Given the dramatic increase in non-medical use of prescription opioids, it is important that clinicians and patients also recognize the potent interaction of opioids with alcohol and other sedative hypnotic drugs, an interaction that can be lethal. That quote from NIAAA director, Dr. George Koob. What he's talking about is that many people who are found deceased from 
a prescription drug or even an illicit drug overdose death involving opioids have been taking the opioids in combination with alcohol or with other sedative drugs like Ambien, uh, which is a sleeping pill, or Ativan, Xanax, Clonopin, uh, Librium, Valium, which are sedatives. And people who develop alcohol use disorders at some point in their lives are nearly twice as likely to also develop opioid use disorder based on the NISARC-3 data. So there's lots of overlap between different types of substance abuse. I'm going to take a commercial break here, finish talking about this study, and I'll have some tips for what you can do to try to combat opioid drug misuse. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott Bay, your host and your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about a study showing alarming 
increases in the rates of abuse and misuse of narcotic pain relievers, and that includes almost 10 million adults in the U.S. Uh, between 2012 and 2013 reported misusing these drugs. Now, similar to substance abuse disorders of other types of drugs, prescription painkiller use disorder includes symptoms such as taking the drug in larger amounts or over a longer period than was intended, the persistent desire to cut down or control use or unsuccessful efforts to do so, failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home as a result of the prescription narcotic painkiller use, and symptoms of tolerance or, uh, and or withdrawal. Tolerance is when someone requires higher and higher amounts to achieve the same effect of taking the drug, whether that's simply pain relief or whether, as is the case with a lot of people who abuse narcotic painkillers, they actually get a type of euphoriant effect from taking these medications, which is different than the typical person who feels like it will relieve their pain, it will make them somewhat drowsy, but that's the extent of the effect they get from it. Now, Rates of non-medical prescription painkiller use were greatest among men, among those with annual incomes less than $70,000, among those previously married, and among those with a high school level education or less. Use was greater among whites and Native Americans and among those living in the Midwest and West. Study results also show that few people misusing prescription painkillers receive treatment. Based on data from that MISARC-3, only about 5% of people misusing prescription opioids in the past year and 17% of those with prescription opioid use disorder ever receive help. Evidence-based treatment options for addiction to prescription opioids include medications and behavioral counseling approaches. Now, the reason so few people with this type of problem are getting help for it is multifactorial. Uh, there are patient-related factors, people with this problem who may be, in some cases, reluctant to admit themselves that they have a problem and need help for it, including getting treatment to get off the drugs. There are physician-related issues, uh, physicians who are reluctant to tell people under their care who they very well may be the ones prescribing these narcotic painkillers for that it seems like they have a problem and uh, whether or not their own prescribing to the patient contributed to it, regardless, at this point, it's an issue needs to be addressed and the person may need treatment. And finally, there are systems issues uh, such that there are simply not enough treatment programs and slots in said treatment programs available 
for all the people who needed to get treatment. But worst of all, in many, many cases, there is extremely limited, if not poor, to no health insurance coverage for drug uh, addiction of any type, including prescription opioids. The national data from the NISARC-3 substantially advances what we know about the prevalence and co-occurring disorders and treatment rates. Prior to this analysis, there was a lack of current epidemiologic data on the non-medical prescription opioid use and prescription opioid use disorder. Based on the 2012-2013 NISARC-3 data, 2.1% of United States adults, that's 4.8 million people, have ever had prescription opioid use disorder in their lifetime, and 0.9% had this disorder in the past year. This compares to 1.4% lifetime and 0.4% past year rates in 2001 to 2002. Rates for the 2012 to 2013 ESARC-3 were 2.9% and 0.8% using the older criteria. So the newer criteria since 2013 really um, didn't make much of a difference. Overall, the study found that non-medical prescription opioid use among United States adults has increased by 161 percent from 2001 to 2002 to 2012 to 2013, while prescription opioid use disorder has increased by 125 percent. The authors suggest that this may be due in part to increase in opioid prescribing and dosage and lessened perception of <clears throat> risk because of its legality. These are not illegal drugs, right? And also a lack of understanding of addictive potential. Researchers found that non-medical prescription opioid use and prescription opioid use disorder are linked to other drug use disorders and a variety of mental health disorders including post-traumatic stress disorder and borderline schizotypal and antisocial personality disorder. Persistent depression and major depressive disorder are linked to non-medical prescription opioid use while bipolar 1 disorder is linked to prescription opioid use disorder. Bipolar disorder patients very often have substance abuse problems as well. That's a common co-occurring issue. Well, <clears throat> this is obviously uh, an extremely disturbing development and one that is, is, can only be considered a major public health concern the reasons for it vary, but I found it interesting that uh, I just saw an article in today's, that appeared in today's USA Today, that doctors feel they're getting mixed messages about prescribing medication to treat pain. On the one hand, doctors are under 
fire to improve patient satisfaction with their treatment, especially when it comes to hospital treatment. Um, and hospitals are also subject to uh, improving their uh, ratings in, in order to ensure that uh, Medicare reimbursements are uh, appropriate for the treatment those patients need in the hospital. And among those patient satisfaction ratings are, was a patient's pain adequately assessed and treated? So that would seem that physicians feel under pressure to continue to prescribe these uh, pain relievers. Uh, but then on the other hand, you have the situation where there's an ever-growing epidemic of opioid prescription abuse and misuse and uh, overdose deaths from opioids. And doctors are getting the message from that that they need to be more careful prescribing them, limit how much and how long they prescribe them. Uh, so there is a movement afoot to remove the criteria or change the wording of the criteria for adequate assessment and treatment of pain from these patient satisfaction surveys to remove incentives for doctors to uh, proactively prescribe narcotic painkillers, which then may result in uh, abuse uh, of the drugs, dependence on the drugs on the part of patients um, in order simply to score well on a survey. Now, what can you do yourself uh, as someone who uh, is listening to this and is concerned about this public health issue? Well, certainly there are a number of things you can do. Uh, if you know someone who is in this type of situation, uh, definitely strongly encourage them to get treatment. Um, if you've already tried to and haven't had success, let's say it's a close family member or a very dear friend, uh, take a, a warm, supportive approach as opposed to a harsh and confrontative approach. And what do I mean by that specifically? Well, Tell the person, look, I, I love you, or that's still too strong if you don't want to say that. I care very much about you, and you're really getting yourself into trouble, and I'm afraid this may kill you, so please get yourself some help. And then <clears throat> a very practical suggestion as to what the individual and the general public can do to try to cut back on abuse and misuse of opioid painkillers and even prevent loss of life. If you are prescribed a short course of narcotic pain relievers uh, after some kind of medical or dental procedure, uh, let's say you've had wisdom teeth extraction or root canal or some other dental procedure that's very painful and you were given a short course of narcotic pain relievers to treat your pain, Take what you need. When you're no longer in pain, discard the rest. And, uh, you know, it needn't be a dental procedure. It can be, let's say, you hurt yourself, you a very bad sprain or surgery or fracture, things like that. Uh, just take only what you need, and then when you're done, don't leave the rest sitting around in your medicine cabinet. 
Because believe it or not, friends, neighbors, or even relatives who come to your house will go looking for it and they'll take it. I know how ugly that sounds, but it happens all the time. Uh, watch out in the local paper in the community section for pharmacies and police departments co-sponsoring drug take-back days uh, where they will accept unused pharmaceuticals, no questions asked. Short of that, throw them in the garbage, but don't flush them down the toilet. Well, it's time to take another commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back with more mental health news after these words. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all latest mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's podcast, very interesting and exciting but very preliminary data showing that when you compare pre- and post-testing in 10 patients who went through a trial of uh, a systems approach to restoring memory problems, these, these 10 folks showed reversal of memory loss when they, in the beginning, appeared well on their way to developing Alzheimer's disease. Uh, the excitement of a development like this cannot be overstated, however... There's only 10 patients. Obviously, this needs to be replicated with a much, much larger trial, uh, but certainly this is a very positive sign. Now, the, re- the results from this quantitative MRI and neuropsychological testing show unprecedented improvements in 10 patients with early Alzheimer's disease or its precursors following treatment with a very detailed, programmatic, and personalized therapy approach. 
This approach was dubbed metabolic enhancement for neurodegeneration. And the results are uh, available online if you want to look at the study in the journal Aging. The study comes jointly from the Buck Institute for Research on Aging and the UCLA Easton Laboratories for Neurodegenerative Disease Research. It's the first to objectively show that memory loss in patients can be reversed and improvement sustained using a complex 36-point therapeutic personalized program that involves comprehensive changes in diet, brain stimulation, exercise, optimization of sleep, specific pharmaceuticals and vitamins, and multiple additional steps that affect brain chemistry. All of these patients had either well-defined mild cognitive impairment, subjective cognitive impairment, or had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease before beginning the program. Now, when they said these 10 patients either had early Alzheimer's disease or its precursors, uh, the precursors they're referring to are mild cognitive impairment, otherwise known as MCI, which really, for the most part, is thought to be just very, very early stage Alzheimer's disease, because unfortunately, the majority of people with MCI go on to develop Alzheimer's disease. And then subjective cognitive impairment. Uh, subjective means it's in one's own mind that they're having problems with memory, and uh, that doesn't bear up under specific testing. In other words, someone thinks, I'm losing my memory, I can't remember anything, but when you give them testing, they test just fine. Now, patients who had had to discontinue work because of these problems, who went through this program, were able to return to work, and those struggling at their jobs were able to improve their performance. Follow-up testing showed some of the patients going from abnormal to normal. This is obviously an extremely exciting development, one of the more striking cases uh, to show an example of this involved a 66-year-old professional man whose neuropsychological testing was compatible with a diagnosis of MCI and whose PET scan of the brain showed reduced glucose utilization indicative of Alzheimer's disease. An MRI of the brain showed the volume of the hippocampus, this is an area of the temporal lobe that's important in memory, only at the 17th percentile for his age. After 10 months on the protocol, a follow-up MRI showed a dramatic increase of his hippocampal volume to the 75th percentile with an associated absolute increase in volume of nearly 12%. This is remarkable that this type of protocol could actually result in the growth of brain tissue, the reverse, the reversal of shrinkage or atrophy of brain tissue, especially in the area of the brain that we know is intimately tied to memory. Now, in another instance, 
a 69-year-old professional man and entrepreneur who is in the process of shutting down his business because of his declining memory, went on this protocol after 11 years of progressive memory loss. Now, that's a pretty long time before you start trying to do something about it. Um, you know, there's probably the best time to intervene is as early as possible. So after 11 years, you would think it, that a lot of damage is set in. It's going to limit how much you can recover. Well, after six months on the protocol, his wife, co-workers, and he noted improvement in memory, a lifelong ability to add columns of numbers rapidly in his head returned, and he reported an ability to remember his schedule and recognize faces at work. After 22 months on the protocol, he returned for follow-up quantitative neuropsychological testing. Results showed marked improvements in all categories with his long-term recall increasing from the 3rd to the 84th percentile. He is now expanding his business. This is really remarkable turnarounds. Here's another uh, patient example. This one's a 49-year-old woman who noted progressive difficulty with word finding and facial recognition. And she went on the protocol after undergoing quantitative neuropsychological testing at a major university. She had been told she was in the early stages of cognitive decline and was therefore ineligible for an Alzheimer's prevention program. That sounds strange, but if you're already in decline, uh, that's not what they're looking for in a program like that. They're looking for people who are cognitively stable and taking a whole population of people like that, initiating some measures and uh, seeing what the rates of Alzheimer's disease wind up as compared to uh, the regular population who didn't undergo the prevention program. But after several months on the experimental protocol in this study, the woman showed clear improvement in recall, reading, navigating, vocabulary, mental clarity, and facial recognition. Her foreign language ability had returned. Nine months after beginning the program, she did a repeat of the neuropsychological testing at the same university site, and at that point she no longer showed evidence of cognitive decline. All but one of the ten patients included in the study are at genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease, carrying at least one copy of the gene apolipoprotein E4. Five of the patients carry two copies of this gene, which gives them a 10 to 12-fold increased risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. This is ushering in a new type of era. The old advice was to avoid testing for apolipoprotein E alleles or, or, or different versions of the gene because there was nothing that could be done about it. So the thought was, well, uh, why know that you're doomed to have something uh, when there's nothing we can do? 
some people wanted to know anyway, so they could get their affairs in order and plan ahead. But now, doctors are recommending that people find out their genetic status as early as possible, so instead of just sitting back and waiting for Alzheimer's disease to inevitably develop, they can implement preventative measures that are starting to be found to be helpful. 65% of the Alzheimer's cases in the United States involve apolipoprotein E4 or ApoE4, with 7 million people carrying two copies of this gene. The system's approach to reverse memory loss follows the abject failure of drug therapies designed to treat Alzheimer's disease and success of combination therapies to treat other chronic illnesses such as cardiovascular disease, cancer, and HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. Decades of biomedical research has revealed that an extensive network of molecular interactions is involved in Alzheimer's disease development, suggesting that a broader-based therapeutic approach may be more effective. Imagine having a roof with 36 holes in it, and your drug patched one hole very well. The drug may have worked, a single hole may have been fixed, but you still have 35 other leaks, and so the underlying process may not be affected much. Addressing multiple targets within the molecular network may be additive or even synergistic and that such a combination approach may enhance drug candidate performance as well. And what they're referring to is this personalized therapeutic program involving diet, brain stimulation, exercise, sleep, pharmaceuticals, vitamins, and other steps. There's 36 different points. It's a pretty intensive program. Cognitive decline is often listed as a major concern of older adults. Um, there are, therefore, staggering numbers of people who could benefit from this research. Uh, there are far-reaching implications of the success of the trial. It's a very small study. needs to be replicated in much larger numbers at various sites, and plans for larger studies are on the way. Alzheimer's disease affects 5.4 million Americans and 30 million people globally without effective prevention and treatment. Prospects for the future are bleak. By 2050, it's estimated that 160 million people globally will have Alzheimer's, including 13 million Americans. All right, we'll take another commercial break here. We'll be back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. 
Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And just to finish up some thoughts on this, I think, groundbreaking study, although a small trial, being able to reverse early signs of Alzheimer's disease in 10 patients, uh, it makes sense that a very, very comprehensive approach is what it's going to take to treat Alzheimer's disease or reverse the symptoms or prevent it. In other words, looking at everything, not just pharmaceuticals, but exercise, sleep, brain stimulation, diet, vitamins. Um, <clears throat> if you think about it, there, it just seems silly to think that Alzheimer's disease can be just treated with one drug. Um, it's such a multifaceted disease. There's so little that we understand about the process that goes on in the brain that leads to it. So uh, if you look at the medications that we have on the market now that are approved to treat Alzheimer's disease, uh, Aricept and um, Exelon and Razadine, which are all anticholinesterase inhibitors, and Namenda, which uh, is a glutamate receptor antagonist, but meant to be added on to one of those other three drugs, they do very little for a very short period of time. They may at best slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease slightly, buying the patient and the caregiver especially a little more time and perhaps slightly better quality of life, but inevitably they don't prevent the inevitable decline of the patient as the disease progresses. When these drugs are started much earlier, they actually do a lot more. The problem is the way these drugs are developed and approved to be used 
is seriously, seriously flawed. Uh, they are only approved for use in moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. Uh, if you take the four as a whole, oh, I didn't mention Cognex uh, first of these drugs because it causes very serious liver damage, so it's seldom used, but it's applicable to that as well. Um, the, the idea that you wait until full-blown Alzheimer's disease at all before you start one of these medications is just hopelessly wrong. By then, it's too late. Uh, if anything, the medication should be started at the very earliest sign of problems. But instead, according to the diagnostic protocols and the way the studies were designed, they're started much, much later on in the process. And by then, it's either too late and they don't do anything at all, or uh, they do much less than they would had they been started earlier. <clears throat> the other thing is that problems with memory are not diagnosed soon enough. Um, people tend to write off memory problems as just normal aging, and in many cases they may be, but even when there are more serious issues, family members, especially spouses, will compensate uh, for the deficits, and again, the disease progresses rather than have uh, earlier, more aggressive intervention. Well, I look forward to the expanded, much larger trials of this protocol and to see how those turn out. Um, it's very important that we find something more to do because uh, unlike several other chronic illnesses, Alzheimer's disease is on the rise. Recent estimates suggest that it has become the third leading cause of death in the United States behind cardiovascular disease and cancer. So we need to do something about this and uh, hopefully this protocol has hit upon something and uh, importantly a comprehensive approach not um, just looking at taking a pill, but making sure you get enough sleep, exercise, brain stimulation, um, diet, and supplements as well. Well, speaking of diet, the next article I want to talk to you about is, is when we eat as important as what we eat? Um People who see psychiatrists such as myself are often very concerned about their weight and their eating habits, um, either as an issue in and of itself or as it relates to the potential weight-increasing side effects of many pharmaceuticals that are used to treat psychiatric illnesses. So I often hear this question uh, people know as far as what to eat. People know whether they follow uh, their knowledge or not. They know what is good and what is not good to eat. But sometimes people think, well, I guess you shouldn't never eat after a certain time or you're going to gain weight and so on and so forth. There's a lot of advice out there. Um, but that doesn't always mean you're going to gain weight if you eat late. 
It depends on how much calories you've had, not what time you eat. However, this study that we're going to talk about does turn up some interesting and important issues as far as our day-night sleep-wake cycle and our body's normal biological rhythms and uh, when we eat. In a review of research on the effect of meal patterns on health, the few studies available suggest that eating irregularly is linked to a higher risk of metabolic syndrome, which is high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, and obesity. The limited evidence highlights the need for larger scale studies to better understand the impact of chrononutrition on public health, uh, the timing of eating chrononutrition. This is according to the authors of two new papers, particularly they say it's important with the rise in the number of shift workers and something they call social jet lag, where many of us live by social clocks rather than our own internal body clocks in terms of when we decide to eat. Our current lifestyle has become demanding and more irregular. Food consumption patterns have changed markedly over the past decades. More meals are skipped, consumed outside the family home, on the go, later in the day, and more irregularly. Two papers published in the journal The Proceedings of Nutrition Society explored the implications for health from different eating habits, reviewing the evidence from a number of dietary studies as well as global differences in eating habits. Eating inconsistently may affect our internal body clock or our circadian rhythms, which typically follow a 24-hour cycle. Many nutritionally related metabolic processes in the body follow a circadian pattern, such as appetite, digestion, and metabolism of fat, cholesterol, and glucose. Food intake can influence our internal clocks, particularly in organs such as the liver and intestine, whilst our central clock is also regulated by the dark light cycle, which in turn can affect food intake. Chrononutrition involves studying the impact of nutrition on metabolic processes and how these may be influenced by and also alter circadian patterns through nutrition intake, irregularity, frequency, and clock time. A number of studies have shown that people working shifts have an increased risk of a number of diseases, including cancer, cardiovascular disease, and metabolic syndrome. For shift work, changes in dietary patterns are therefore an important aspect to consider when investigating its effects on health. Social jet lag is estimated to affect more than 80% of the general population in Central Europe, especially people living in urban areas. This discrepancy between our internal body clock and social clock has been linked to a greater risk of diseases like obesity and metabolic syndrome, whilst shorter periods of sleep have been linked to weight gain. Consuming small but frequent meals to regulate appetite and weight is a concept that has been adopted in many fad diets, yet some studies have shown 
that a greater number of daily meals has been linked to a greater risk of obesity. And thus, one could argue that we should consume fewer meals per day. However, without a reduced calorie intake, fewer meals are unlikely to bring major health benefits. Moreover, when studying the impact of irregular meal patterns, it is also important to consider what people eat. Some studies have found a link between how regularly people eat and what they choose to eat, for example, with poor food choices linked to skipping breakfast. Along with studying the impact of what and when we eat, we should also consider with whom we eat. There is evidence that regular family meals contribute to healthy eating habits in children and adolescents. Globally, eating patterns vary widely. Lunch is the most important meal of the day. That's characteristic of France and the Mediterranean region. And this is the belief in the importance of pleasurable and social eating. So the French tend to eat together as a household more regularly and follow a regular meal pattern of three meals a day. In central England, drivers such as individual preferences and convenience dictate food choices which translates to greater consumption of ready-prepared and takeaway meals, more meal-skipping, and calorie-dense snack foods. In the United States and the UK, energy intake increases gradually across the day, with breakfast providing the lowest proportion of energy and dinner the greatest. A shift toward greater energy intake at the evening meal has been reported in France in recent decades due to changing work patterns, although French eating patterns are not yet on a par with those observed in England. Recent research shows that there's greater weight loss and improved blood sugar levels in overweight and obese women who ate more calories in the morning than in the evening, and there's also more importance of the ratio of evening to morning energy intake, and that evening intake may affect BMI differently based on whether people are regular or irregular consumers of breakfast. Bottom line is, eat more at breakfast, less at lunch, least at dinner. That's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.